Hey and welcome back to Future to Fight For. My name's Ed Miller, I work on economic fairness at GetUp, which is a movement of over 1 million Australians fighting for a more progressive society. For regular listeners, I'm sorry it's been a while between episodes. It's been a parliamentary sitting period here in Australia, and we've been busy working to resist a huge number of significant attacks being made by the Turnbull government. For those who might be joining us for the first time, this podcast is a series of short, sharp conversations with some of the leading thinkers of our time. It's a chance to reflect on the challenges we face and and talk about some of the big ideas people around the world are working on. It sits alongside a policy vision, which you can check out at futuretofightfor.org.au. And if you're liking these conversations, you'll probably like what you find written there. So have a look, sign up for updates, and if you can, chip in to fund our campaign work on these kinds of areas. This episode is one that I've been looking forward to since the start of this journey. I'm joined by someone who's not only my favorite economist, but one of the leading economic thinkers of our generation. Steph Kelton was the former chief economist for the Democrats on the US Senate Budget Committee and senior economic advisor to the Bernie 2016 campaign. She's now the professor of public policy at Stony Brook University, as well as a fellow at the Levy Institute for Economics and a founding fellow of the Sanders Institute. We talk about her time with Bernie, her work over the last couple of decades pushing for a federal job guarantee, and why conservatives and progressives get it wrong so often when they talk about the budget and government spending. Steph, it's so nice to be speaking with you again. I'm glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. That's okay. How are you? I understand that you've had a, had a broken arm recently. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm broken, but I'm healing. I, yeah, I managed to break my arm about five weeks ago, so I ended up undergoing surgery, and now I've got this bionic metal plate and screw sort of thing, but I'm, I'm doing better, a little bit better every day. I feel like you couldn't have timed an injury much better if you tried. I, I know that over in the United States at the moment, there's a really exciting sense of movement on the issue of a federal jobs guarantee with multiple Democratic senators bringing legislation before the Senate, which is a, a process that you've been heavily involved in for a while. I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about how you firstly became interested in economics and particularly macroeconomics and the study of full employment. Well, I, I think I fell into economics quite by accident. I think like m- most students in the US, I started off my undergraduate training not knowing exactly what I wanted to study. So, you know, one starts sampling courses and trying to figure out what one wants to do with one's life. And I At some point, I was uh, an accounting major. I was studying finance. And as part of that curriculum, I was required to take some economics. And, you know, it wasn't so much the content of the courses that uh, initially grabbed me. It was one professor in particular. You know how that happens. You have that one professor. And um, he was teaching microeconomics, interestingly enough. And I did not grow up to be a microeconomist. But he was inspiring. And I went on to take a course in the history of economic thought with him. And that's really where the, the study of economics started to become very interesting to me. So, you know, long story short, it begins by accident. And it's through the study of the history of economics, the big thinkers, you know, from everyone from Marx and Keynes, Adam Smith, Veblen and others. And this really kind of got my juices going. And I just never looked back. 
And I know that the majority of your career since that time has been working in academia, but I also know that you're now very much a a rising star in the US progressive political scene. And I imagine that's been a bit of a a ride in the last few years as you've become more deeply immersed in that highly politicized world. Can you tell me a little bit about how that journey began and how it was that you came to be appointed to the US Senate Budget Committee by Bernie Sanders? I could try to do that. Um, You know, I, I wasn't part of the conversations that happened maybe behind the scenes. But from what I understand, we had an election, the Democrats lost the Senate. And so the Republicans became the majority. Uh, The committee appointments come out and Senator Sanders became the ranking member of the Senate Budget Committee. So minority party holds the ranking position, the majority uh, hold the chair position. So the chair and the ranking member of the Budget Committee both get to hire a chief economist to advise committee members on a variety of things. And so for the first time, Senator Sanders had to hire a chief economist. And uh, from what I understand from conversations after the fact, they were just asking around who could Senator Sanders hire to be the chief economist for the Democrats. And I guess my name kept coming up. And so we had a phone conversation. He called and we talked and then we hung up. And two days later, I think he called back. We had almost the identical conversation. And um, at the end of that call, he asked me if I would come and do this job. So that's sort of how it happened. And once you got to the Senate, did you find that it was an empowering experience in the sense that it was, you know, I imagine a really great opportunity to forward some of your own thinking and have your own ideas put on front of decision makers? Or or was it really frustrating coming from the world of academia to the world of politics, which is so often full of compromises and barriers to, to good economic policy? It was some of each. And there were days when it could be really exhilarating, when you you felt like you really pushed the envelope in a productive way, that you were able to have an impact, whether it was in you know drafting legislation or writing floor speeches or preparing for hearings that you know you were able to find someone good to come in and testify and offer a different perspective than anyone would have heard, but for your influence there. And then there were days that were very frustrating where everything, it seems impenetrable. You know, the you, everybody is sort of locked into that framework, that zero sum way of thinking about the federal budget. And, you know, we would have hearing after hearing after hearing because the party in control, which were the Republicans at the time, they get to set the agenda. Is there a particular example that stands out to you of that? So the Republicans would call a hearing on the debt crisis. Essentially, it was the same hearing over and over and over again. And it was always around the idea of deficits and debt being you know, somehow responsible for creating a, a fiscal crisis in the US. And that becomes frustrating, right? Because there weren't enough people on my side of the aisle who were prepared to really challenge those narratives in a substantive way. So it became more of the Republicans saying, we have this huge crisis, it's here and we have to act now, mostly pushing austerity. And the Democrats saying, well, we totally agree with you. There is a crisis, but the crisis is mostly that we don't collect enough revenue. So the way to deal with the problem is higher taxes. And so they're sort of locking horns on how to deal with the problem. But fundamentally, both sides believe that that's what the budget committee ought to be concerning itself with, is achieving somehow smaller deficits and ultimately balancing the federal budget. 
We're going to come back to this topic later because I think it's one of the most important things that both sides of politics get wrong, both in your country and in, and in mine as well. You know, in Australia, the Conservative Party has talked for years about a, a debt and deficit disaster. And the Labour Party, which is our progressive party, has bought into that frame and, and regularly feels the need to compete in this ridiculous race back to surplus as though that's somehow good economic management. Uh, but before we get there, I want to track this story a little bit further. You were on the US Senate Budget Committee, and you obviously made a significant impression there because you went on to be the senior economic advisor to the Bernie 2016 campaign. And, and while it may not have won, it's fundamentally altered the landscape of democratic politics in the US with a powerful movement of energized people and a set of really big ideas. What was that campaign like for you? Well, I mean, it was incredible. I arrived and started working for him on the Senate in January of 2015. And I think by May of that year, he announced that he was going to run for president. And, you know, he and I would go to dinner regularly when I was working in the Senate. We could pretty much walk anywhere we wanted. He walks everywhere. We'd walk to dinner and, you know, he'd get recognized by a couple of people once in a while. And then we would take some pictures. I would take the pictures. Uh, but very very, very quickly, you know, within a matter of months, things just exploded to the point that it became very difficult to walk anywhere. And then at some point, of course, there was Secret Service, and then we didn't do that anymore. But it was incredible, the speed with which the ideas, uh, the policies that he was bringing into the conversation, they caught fire, the way they resonated with people, you know, things people didn't talk about before. Nobody really talked about in the way that he did what the rest of the world is able to do in terms of health care, in terms of college, in terms of child care, in terms of paid family leave. Like all of these kinds of things that were on his agenda, the people here, for the most part, really don't even think about asking for because we really aren't aware of what the rest of the world is doing for their people. So it was extremely exciting to see that appetite for for big ideas and the degree to which people were we're really ready for somebody like him to come in and say, yes, we can. And that appetite that people displayed for big ideas is so fascinating to me because it's one of those things that's difficult to get a good sense of from over here in Australia because we're not on your media cycle. Do you think it was something unique about The Messenger or are people over there just struggling and ready for a vision that's scaled up to the kinds of challenges that we face? I think it has to be both. I really do. I think you could have taken exactly the same message and had it delivered from someone less authentic. Um, there's something about him. People really like him. They, they believe him. They believe that he's genuine in what he's trying to do. They trust him. Um, so I don't think that you could remove the messenger and just replace anyone and say, you know, go out and hear your talking points and it would have been as effective. It was a combination of of the two things. And of course, on the other side with Donald Trump, you had somebody who people basically thought, well, the guy says what he's thinking, you know, he's, he doesn't pull any punches. And in a very different way, Senator Sanders, I think, comes across in the, in the same kind of way with people in that people think he's a straight shooter. They think he's telling it the way he sees it. And one of the other things that struck me about that campaign that I wanted to ask you about is that so many of the criticisms that people make about bold, progressive visions, 
just bounced off the Sanders campaign. You know, he readily embraced the label of socialist, which was up until that point probably unthinkable in the context of a US presidential election. He embraced big spending initiatives and proposed a, a new framework of universal rights to healthcare, free college, and things like decent work. Uh, do you think that progressive politicians in general have something to learn from that? You know, that the, the labels that they're afraid will be applied to them if they come out in favor of bold ideas just don't resonate with everyday people? I definitely do. I mean, I think that uh, many, many 2020 likely contenders have learned exactly that lesson from watching the success of his campaign. People are ready for big, bold ideas. They really are. And we basically had a contest between two candidates here. One of them said, uh, we're going to you know, make America great again. That was the slogan, which in and of itself suggests it's, something's wrong, right? It's a, it's a message that we're going to fix things. Donald Trump would say when he was campaigning, uh, help is on the way help is on the way. And he'd go into these communities in the, we call it the Rust Belt, the states in the US, many of which have been hollowed out, lots of them by trade over many years and uh, industries are gone, the good jobs uh, have disappeared. And he would go into these communities and he would say, help is on the way. We're going to fix it. We're going to make it right. And, you know, Hillary Clinton ends up uh, with a nomination for the Democratic Party. And, and she's saying America's already great. You know, that was her message. And so it was more of a building on the successes of the last eight years message. And at the end of the day, uh, the message that that resonated with people in those communities was the one that said everything's not OK and we're going to turn things around. Now, I, I don't think there's much evidence at all that um, the policies coming out of this administration are actually aimed at lifting up the people in those very communities that delivered the White House to him. But Bernie got it. You know, and I think that's what people saw, that Senator Sanders looked at these communities and said, everything is not OK. And you heard him talk about income and wealth inequality, heard him talk about um, wage stagnation. You heard him talk about the decline of unions. You heard him talk about trade and bad trade policies. You know, he came with a big vision to put things right, to reverse these decades long trends. And so I think that's gotten through that. Uh, everything is not okay, in spite of some of the headline numbers, you see low unemployment rates and so forth, that underneath the surface, in way too many communities, people are still really, really struggling. And they're ready for somebody to come in with a big, bold agenda that says, we're going to turn things around. And speaking of big, bold agendas, I know that you're across the economic vision that we've been working on here at GetUp to try and break Australia out of its incrementalist, small-target political approach. Uh, and I think that one of the most important and genuinely transformative ideas in Future to Fight For is that of a federal job guarantee, which is based heavily on your research. But for many people who may not be familiar with it, can you explain what a federal job guarantee is? Well, it is what it sounds like. It is the federal government standing ready to guarantee that anyone who wants to be employed and can't find any work, can't find anyone who's willing to hire them, the federal government stands ready to ensure that a job will be available. So it's a stopgap measure. It's a basic job provided by the federal government, funded by the federal government, that ensures full employment at all times. And when you say full employment, the thing that some people might not understand there is that you mean genuinely full employment, not 
the four to five percent that some people may have learned in high school is the natural or non-inflationary rate of unemployment. You know, that's a concept that, uh, you know, even a good number of central bankers today broadly discredit. But the idea that everybody in the economy who wants to work has an individual right to a job that's legally enforceable. And I think one of the things that people struggle with under that quite different framework of, of what full employment is, is imagining the kinds of jobs a government will create and the kinds of work that people will do. How do you imagine that playing out in practice? So the way that we have thought about this for now going on more than two decades, and we've got a collection of economists here in the U.S., including many at the Levy Economics Institute here in my home state of New York. The way that we envision it is that the kinds of jobs that people will do would be broadly designed around a care economy. So we envision people being employed, doing things to care for their communities, to care for people, and to care for the planet. Beyond that, we like the idea of leaving it up to local communities to design and decide what types of work are most valued. Look, in the U.S., cultures are very different across the United States, and the kinds of projects that might make sense in one community might not be desirable from the perspective of people living in another community. So what we believe is that the projects themselves should bubble up from the local communities. That is, you should get input from the people living in the communities, from the not-for-profits, from, from the local governments, from the people who are going to be most affected by the kinds of work that's being done. Give them an opportunity to weigh in, to say, our community really needs a playground and a community park and a space. Our community really needs soil erosion projects. Our community really needs, and the projects will come from the people living in the communities themselves. It will engage them in the process. It will engage them politically. And this is better, we believe, than a top-down, the jobs being chosen by the federal government, which, doesn't, which isn't closely enough connected to the needs of the community. So I think you could be extremely imaginative when you think about the kinds of work that people will do, but it's up to the communities themselves to, to decide. And this idea of a care economy is incredibly important because I think it answers one of the other concerns that people have, which is that, you know, in the context of automation and artificial intelligence, there actually won't be that many jobs left for people to do. And, I, you know, I don't agree with that view, but I'm hoping you can speak to the way that you think a job guarantee will improve our ability to adapt to that changing employment landscape in the context of automation. Well, yeah, I mean, look, this is... It's, it's an exciting time in many respects. Nearly 100 years ago, John Maynard Keynes wrote The Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And there he was imagining what it would be like when we reach the stage where it's easy enough to take care of our essential needs and we have the extra time available to either take more leisure or to do other kinds of work to increase the standard of living, not just for ourselves, but for others. And that's where I think this idea of the care economy comes into play. There are good reasons to be hopeful, I think, that the machines will continue to do the kinds of monotonous, mundane jobs that people really don't enjoy. They're not really rewarding kinds of jobs to pull a handle all day long in a factory as things go down a conveyor belt, for example. If a machine can relieve someone of that type of work, it's probably a good thing. 
I don't think that the idea that automation will continue to advance and that it's going to cause dislocations in certain types of work means that the machines are going to do everything and nobody needs to work anymore. I think that a really rich society has people engaged in a whole new array of activities where we're connected with one another, with nature, with our communities in ways that enrich our lives and make work more meaningful. One of the other big ideas out there at the moment is that of a universal basic income or a UBI as it's often known. And proponents of the UBI say that they'd prefer to solve that problem more directly and with less community involvement through the provision of a check that enables people to live regardless of whether they're engaged in these new kinds of labor that are important and necessary in a modern economy. What's your attitude towards a UBI? Well, you said something interesting there. You said that the people who are proponents of a universal basic income say, why not do it this way? It's still solving that problem. And I think that you have to ask yourself, what is that problem? The universal basic income doesn't solve the problem of involuntary unemployment. And that is the problem that the job guarantee is designed to solve, right? So the job guarantee directs resources at the unemployed. It says, look, the problem that we're trying to solve is people who want work and can't find it. That's the problem the job guarantee tries to solve. The universal basic income, I think, is trying to solve a different problem. Proponents of the UBI are trying to solve the problem of people don't have enough money. And so the solution then becomes give everyone a check and then they will have money. But that doesn't get you full employment. And so we're I think the, the two groups uh, have a different end game in mind. The job guarantee is trying to solve the chronic problem of involuntary unemployment in capitalism. And the UBI folks are thinking, I, I guess, mostly about poverty and finding a way to raise incomes directly so that by definition, you, in a sense, raise people above poverty, but that doesn't guarantee you a full employment economy. And the final topic I want to cover off with you, Steph, is something that we touched upon earlier, which is the way that we talk about budgets and the way we answer the question, how do we pay for it when it comes to big ideas? About a month ago here in Australia, we had the federal budget and both parties since have been fighting over who's going to return to surplus quicker and whose surplus will end up being bigger. And I think that most high school economics students could tell politicians in Canberra that these are some pretty nonsense debates and actually a kind of reckless framework for thinking about good fiscal policy. But you're a leading proponent of a school of thought called modern monetary theory that I think has the best explanation for why debates around balancing the budget are the wrong debates to be having. Can you explain what modern monetary theory is? Well, if I can condense a couple of decades of scholarship for you in a uh, soundbite, I will try to do that. I mean, look, economics is full of schools of thought, and modern monetary theory has become a contending framework within uh, economics, so if you like, a school of thought, that at its core is about recognizing the way the modern monetary system works in different countries. So in a country like Australia or like in the United States, where the government has control of its own currency, where it issues the currency in Australia, the Australian dollar comes from the Australian government, it can't come from anywhere else. 
in the U.S. The U.S. dollar comes from the U.S. government, can't legally come from anywhere else. It doesn't come from China, as uh, we're sometimes told here in the U.S. The federal government in both of our countries is in a fundamentally different position from a household or from a private business. The constraints are very different. It gets to run its uh, fiscal affairs in a way that you and I could not. And so because it has, if you like, the power of the purse or control of a sovereign currency, it can never become broke or insolvent or forced to miss a payment. There can't be things for sale in the Australian dollar that the Australian government cannot afford. So that's kind of central to MMT, the idea that in countries like yours and like mine, the how will you pay for it question or can we afford it question should not be on the table. You get to move that question aside and instead focus on the availability of the real resources in your country or in my country. So if someone says, how are you going to pay for a trillion dollars of infrastructure investment in the U.S.? My answer would be we're going to use two million unemployed contractors and construction workers, engineers, architects. Now, I just made up two million, but I, you, you get the point, right? Uh, we're going to use this many tons of steel. We're going to use this much of the spare capacity in our factories. We're going to use... And that's what I'll tell you. I'll tell you how we're going to take the resources that are available to us and we're going to mobilize them and put them to work, creating infrastructure, repairing, rebuilding, modernizing our infrastructure. But I don't have to worry about where is the U.S. government going to find the U.S. dollar. And just to dive in on that, I think one of the things that people balk at when they hear this is that it sounds like you're proposing that governments can print money in order to, to spend on the big things that we need. Is that the right way to think about it? Well, I don't, you, you notice I didn't use the term printing money. Um, that's not how it works. So when, when the government engages in, let's say, large scale infrastructure investment, uh, nobody starts cranking a handle and printing up Australian bills in order to make these payments. This is the modern era. So uh, everything is done by giving instructions to the central bank to change the numbers in someone's balance sheet and the numbers go up. The government is able to afford whatever the economy is prepared to sell to the government in, in exchange for its own currency. So you can call it printing money, but I think it's not useful to use that language because it usually conjures up in people's minds visions of Weimar Germany or Zimbabwe, <laughs> right? And then you get into this, oh my God, you're going to create an inflation or even a potentially hyperinflationary problem. And of course, that's not at all uh, what the goal is. The goal, in fact, is to do the opposite. The goal is to maximize the productive capacity in your economy and our economy to get to full employment without creating an inflationary problem. So it's about using the levers of uh, fiscal policy, both the spending and the tax levers, to create enough demand to get the economy uh, maintained at full employment, but not so much spending, not so much demand that you push inflation too high. And I think the really important logical next step is for people to understand what this means in terms of the sustainability of deficits. 
I know from talking to them that a, that a lot of progressive politicians in Australia will agree that sometimes running deficits is necessary, that, but that eventually we have to bring it back to surplus so that we can end up paying down the debt. Is that the right way of thinking about the sustainability of running budget deficits? Well, when, I, when you say sustainable, I think, is it inflationary? So, you know, a lot of people that hear the word deficit and they have an immediate negative reaction because they don't actually understand what the deficit is. And that's definitely true here. And it's true even in um, some of the high level uh, talks that I give to the financial community. You say, what is the government deficit? How do you feel about that? Oh, it's a terrible thing. It's very, very bad and dangerous. Okay, well, what is the government deficit? Well, I don't know. (laughs) It's big and I think it's a bad thing. Okay, so, you know, you kind of walk them through and you say, well, but look, if the federal government is running a budget deficit, let's say it spends 100 into the economy, but it only taxes 90 back out. Okay, we label that a deficit. And some somewhere in Washington, D.C., some agency writes down on the ledger that the U.S. government has run a deficit. So they write minus 10. The thing that often gets overlooked is the fact that when they put the 100 in and only take 90 out, somebody in the economy just ended up with 10 that they would not have otherwise had. In other words, the government's deficit has a counterpart, which is a surplus somewhere in the economy. And, you know, once you start explaining it that way, it turns out in my experience of many years now, people start really warming up to the idea of the government running budget deficits because now they see, they say, wait a minute, why am I worried about the negative sign on their balance sheet? I should be celebrating the positive sign, the plus sign that's showing up somewhere in the economy, right? And you can have debates about, you know, what what the budget deficit was for, you know, did it mostly go to help people at the very top? Was it useful spending? Was it wasteful spending? There are all kinds of debates you can have around the deficit, but debating whether or not the deficit is in and of itself a dangerous thing, I think usually misses the point. If the government is increasing the size of its deficit, now it, let's say, puts in 150, but it only takes the 90 out. Now you leave 60 behind in the economy. Well, wait a minute. What do people do with that additional income that they have now? And if their government is spending more or taxing less and increasing deficits in an economy that doesn't have the capacity to absorb a bunch of people running around with more money who might spend and create inflation, then you could potentially have a problem. So when you ask the question, you know, is should people ever worry about the deficit? Can governments just keep running deficits? The answer is it depends. It depends on the state of the economy through time. You may need bigger deficits going forward. You may need smaller deficits going forward, but you can't know in advance. You know, year 11 economics, I was only half joking before, but in year 11 economics, you you learn about this model called the circular flow of income. And at its most basic, it talks about the fact that when governments are spending more than they're taxing, that grows the economy. And when governments are taxing more than they're spending, i.e. running surpluses, it shrinks the economy. And it's this weird thing where we have these debates so often in in politics about who's going to get back to surplus and which surplus is going to be bigger. And it's these politicians bragging about the fact that they're going to shrink the economy. Yeah, that's right. And, and who's going to shrink the economy faster and, and buy more? How has that way of thinking become entrenched and, and how do we go about changing it? You know, policymakers are reticent to 
change message. I mean, it's difficult, right? Because if they go on television with a, a new proposal, uh, say my legislation designed to do whatever, the first question they get always is, how are you going to pay for it? And every new piece of legislation in the U.S. that's major um, has to get a score from the Congressional Budget Office. And what the CBO does is tell you how the legislation will impact deficits and the debt going forward. So there's still way too much emphasis on the importance of the impact of proposed legislation on budget outcomes and not nearly enough uh, attention to the question Will your legislation do what it's supposed to do? So if you say, I, I have this piece of legislation, I want to um, uh, increase the earned income tax credit to reduce poverty. CBO says, well, this is the way it will impact the deficit. But nobody says this is the way it will impact child poverty rates. You know, what I've seen in the last, let's say, six or seven years here in the U.S. is the journalists are doing a much better job of helping people understand this, including policymakers. There is a growing number of people writing in the pages of the Financial Times and the, even the Wall Street Journal who are beginning to create a bit of a drumbeat, trying to help people better understand the nature of the public sector and its spending and budgets. I'm conscious of time because you've given me more than enough of yours, but you've obviously seen the highs and lows of politics. You've worked in, in a frustrating environment on the Senate. You've, you've been part of one of the most inspiring political campaigns in modern history anywhere. Uh, and yet, I think at, at the moment, a lot of people who would consider themselves progressive around the world feel a little bit in the wilderness. Uh, you know, what gives you hope? about the future? Dang, Ed, this is a tough one. I think people are, are waking up to the, the threats that we face. The future can tip in one of two directions. And I think we're recognizing more and more that if we don't lean hard into one direction, that things can turn out very, very bleak. Senator Sanders likes to say change doesn't come from the top down. It only comes from the bottom up. And I think that um, the work that, that you are doing with GetUp, you know, millennials in particular are a very inspiring group. The next generation, these young people, they're engaged. They understand the serious challenges we face. And I, I think they're the great hope. Steph, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for your time today. And I hope that we see you out in Australia later this year. All right, bye-bye. And that's it for another episode. Thanks so much for joining. It's so difficult to describe how important some of these ideas are. Some of Steph's thinking around the way that budgets work and the role the government can play in providing jobs and securing a full employment economy would be radically transformative, not just for the labor market, but also for the way that we see the possibilities of what states can provide for their citizens in the 21st century. Uh, so if you enjoy that discussion, please go online to futuretofightforward.org.au where you can read more about a job guarantee and more about the intelligent conversation that we need to have around uh, fiscal policy and budgets. And stay tuned for the next episode, which is with George Monbiot, who's a UK author, philosopher, environmentalist. Uh, we have a great discussion about the end of neoliberalism and what might replace it. Until next time. <laughs>